Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians. As I periodically remind us, the, the letters of the scriptures did not have chapters and verses. And so it's good for us to remember that at times because we can sometimes uh, break it up into pieces and, and not not remember how well it all fits together, right? That, that the, the apostle starts writing to address a subject and actually uh, is writing for a long time about the same subject and it, it's crossed over a couple of different chapters. So it might be easy for us to just think he's moved on to something different. Right? You finish chapter two, you go into chapter three, and so it's like, okay, he's moved on because that's the way we're thinking when we think chapters, right? I finished one chapter, I'm going to the next chapter. And then finish chapter three and move into chapter four. Okay, now we're on to a second thing. But, but the fact is that that's not really the case. The apostle has been dealing with essentially the same broad subject since chapter one and then has been dealing with a more narrow aspect of that uh, all the way since the beginning of chapter three. And he's been laying out uh, the, the, the case for why they shouldn't be fleshly or carnal like they're being, right? That they're, they're actually full of strife and jealousy. And that's evidencing itself by the fact that they're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And, and so he's been, he's been sort of laying the groundwork for why that's not right. And, and then he's going to start honing in on the, so here's what that means for you. He's coming down to, you know, if I'd use something we'd think of, he's, he's coming down to the invitation time. Right? He's going to start to make specific application of it that this, this, this is not acceptable to God. You, you cannot justify this. You can't continue in this way. And, and so it's important to see that because he's going he's gonna to be a little spicy here. But it didn't just come out of the blue. Right? He's actually been moving this way for a long time in order to help them see some things so that then he can come and sort of really put his finger on the problem with them and, 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 and challenge them very directly. So look if you would beginning in verse 6, and I think you can see uh, immediately in the wording of Paul how he's tying this all together with what's preceded it. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. So what are the, these things? Well, all the stuff he's just been talking about, right? I've been doing all of this, in essence, to apply it to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles Last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world and the dregs of all things, even until now. So Paul starts to bring in, uh, in things into focus, right? And 
And in many ways, what he's, he's trying to establish for them is a, a ground or a basis for rejecting the arrogance that they have. Right. And he's, he's pretty clear about that. He tells us there's a purpose in verse six. We've written this so that you may learn not to exceed what is written so that no one will become arrogant and behalf of one against the other. So, so what he's really after is this arrogance that's shown itself at Corinth by people arguing for one against another. Why should they not be puffed up in a way that's producing the conflict in the church? And these verses are aiming to show them uh, what's wrong with that and why that's inconsistent with what it means to actually be a follower of Christ. So we'll just work our way through. Verse six is the prohibition. Right, he's telling them not to do something. I think it's, to me, it's fascinating uh, to see the method that he uses at the beginning of verse six. He tells us these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Uh, you could possibly, uh, I think it, it would be uh, consistent with what it means to say, uh, I've used Apollos and myself as illustrations to, to apply this to you, All right? So, so what he's doing is he, he's saying that he's taken the last at least chapter and a half to lay out principles about ministry, about those who serve Christ. This is the way we ought to think about it. What is Paul? What is Apollos? They're just servants through whom you believe. What is the church? Well, it's God's field. It's God's building. It's God's temple. What kind of ministry does God want? Well, he wants the kind that's built on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones. Whose evaluation in ministry really matters? Not the Corinthians, not any human court, not even our own, but God's. So he's laid all of that out, and he says those principles are true, and then he moves to the application, right? So he spent all of his time talking about Paul and Apollos mainly, but he's really been doing it for their sakes to help them see what's true of them should be true, true of Apollos and Paul is also true of the Corinthians. And this is the problem. The Corinthians are violating these principles. They're actually not walking according to them. And so what he's trying to do is help them understand truth and then apply it to their situation, which if I could just, I mean, this is, 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 I think it's valuable for us to see because I think this is, this is an example of faithful biblical reasoning, right? The kind the scriptures talk about in Hebrews five, that's a mark of spiritual maturity that we become skillful in the word of righteousness that we have our senses trained to discern between good and evil. And we we live in a world that really, uh, I mean, I think across the board has sort of abandoned good reasoning, right? If you watch watch, uh, just about any online argument, I mean, you can can watch it or news show, you can watch it or read it. And if you were teaching a class on logic, you would have, like weeks worth of bad examples to show people, right? Because their, their arguments have no, no real connection to each other and, and people can just say whatever they want, however they feel. It doesn't even matter if it matches up to what's going on. And, and the Bible isn't like that. The Bible goes very clearly from, all right, here's the truth and here are the implications of that truth. Right. This, this is what follows from it. And that's what Paul's doing here. Here, here are the truths about the, the message, about ministry, about those who are involved in ministry. Here are all these truths. And here's what follows from it. Because this is true, here's the problem with what you're doing. And we tend to live in a world that wants to go, I'm not going to draw any implication. You need to, you show me that in black and white. As if you can limit 
the ethical ramifications of the scripture to only the exact thing that's said and not the necessary implications of it. That's a, that's a, a very, a very novel approach, right? It's, it's not the way the writers of scripture operated and it's not the way people have operated through the history of the church. Right. I mean, it's actually written in, for instance, to the Westminster Confession of Faith, this line, good and necessary consequence. That's what I'm talking about. Here's the truth. And here's a good and necessary consequence of that truth, because that's the way we're supposed to think in the use of scripture. We're supposed to let it control us in such a way that we're thinking through the ramifications of what God says. And I believe that we live in a world that wants to try and ignore that process because they don't like the conclusions they'll come to, <laughs> right? Because if it's easy to go, why? Well, I don't want to think about that. Because if we start to think about that, we might go, ooh, I can't do that. Or, oh, I must do this. So we like to sort of limit ourselves to, to what we think is the full understanding of scripture, but we're really not meditating on it to draw out those ramifications. And Paul gives us a great example of what it means to be skillful in the word of righteousness, to think carefully about the significance of what the Bible says for our lives. And that's, that's what he does here. So now look what he says in verse six. Why did he do this? Why did he spend this time laying out these truths? It's, it's a twofold statement here. So that in us, you may learn not to exceed what is written. And then another, so that no one of you, no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So there's two, two statements that I think actually sort of, it's one of those ones where he says the first and the second comes out of it. Right. Don't, don't think of them as independent from each other, but actually sort of, uh, like a, like a, a box. You open the first one, live under the authority of scripture. And the one inside of it is to not be arrogant and in animosity against one another. And that's what he's pushing at. There's a decent amount of debate about what that phrase means so that you may learn not to exceed what is written. So, what is the what is written? And, and I think the easiest answer, and I think the best answer is just to think about what he's done because that phrase, what is written, he's already used it a number of times up to this point. Go, go back into chapter one and look at verse 19. One nineteen says, for it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Go down to verse 31 of chapter one. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, he talks about something being written and then he quotes the Old Testament scriptures to them. Look at chapter two and verse nine. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And then again in chapter three and look at verse 19, second part of the verse says, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And verse 20, and again, meaning again, it is written, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So I think the easiest, best answer is to see that Paul is actually going, I have showed you all the way through the first three chapters what the Old Testament scriptures would say about the wisdom of God versus the foolishness of man, about boasting in man versus boasting in God. Right, that, that God is going to move to expose the wisdom of this world as futility. So he's written all of these things. He's made this argument all the way through so that you would learn not, not to go past what the Bible tells you on this. The Old Testament scriptures speak about 
Because if you start to boast in men, right? That's, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. You're violating the scriptures that he's been pointing out. If you try to recraft the message of the cross into a message of sophistication and human wisdom, then you're going against or over or beyond what the Bible talks about. So he's, he's effectively saying, I've done all of this argument so you will learn to live under the authority of God's word, that, that it will be God's word that controls your thinking and what's that in contrast to? Either the world or their own thinking influenced by the world, right? That's the threat that's there. And he's trying to reposition them, if I could put it, under the word of God, because the arrogance that they have is that their, their thinking is reflecting worldly wisdom that will be proven futile by God. And they're so arrogant about it, they're not recognizing it, right? I mean, this, this is the reality of arrogance, isn't it? I mean, if you, you, if, you, uh, if you ever talk to an arrogant person, you know that they are absolutely convinced they're right. I mean, that's, that's a part of it. And, and so Paul's helping them see the standard really isn't Paul. The standard is what the scriptures have said and their position is actually in contrast to the scriptures and the fact that they're ready to hold to their own thoughts rather than God's word could only be described as arrogant. I mean, if I think I know better than God, am I right about that? Never. And the fact that I would think I'm right about it has to be only the evidence of my arrogance. Well, I mean, you know, God just doesn't understand the, you know, what's going on in my life. Or he, he doesn't understand how to do ministry in the 21st century. I mean, he really doesn't know what modern man's like. So we, you know, we really probably need to step it up a little bit. Right? I mean, the minute we start to think that we can improve upon God's means and message of redemption, is like, like we've got a massive ego that we think we know better than God. And, and that's what Paul's trying to see. If you, if you think you can improve on God's way, you have gone beyond what is written. And that is a reflection of, of arrogance. Then he moves to what the specific expression of that in verse six, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So the, 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 the command is not, right, to abandon the word of God and not to embrace a kind of arrogant animosity, uh, being puffed up. Some of you might have a, a footnote next to the word arrogant there that says being puffed up because that's, that's the language of it. Uh, and it even, you know, I mean, we'd say things like he's got a big head or he's got an inflated view of himself, right? That's, that's basically the concept of it, which clearly seems to have been a problem at Corinth because Paul uses this a number of times. There's two more times in this chapter. Look down to verse 18. He says, now some have become arrogant or puffed up as though I were not coming to you. And then at the end of verse 19, Find out not the words of those who are arrogant or puffed up, but their power. Drop down into verse 2 of chapter 5. You have become arrogant or puffed up and have not mourned instead. He says in chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge can puff up or make arrogant. In chapter 13, he, he does the flip side of that and says love is not puffed up or arrogant. Right? So... So clearly there's a problem at Corinth about their view of themselves, which is exaggerated in some way. And he's going he's gonna to start narrowing in on that. And that's a part of what the confrontations are going to come out of this in the application that he's making. But, but it's a spirit that has an overinflated view of self, whether that's your morality, because in chapter five, apparently, they were puffed up about 
immorality happening in the church as if it was a manifestation of their spiritual exalted state. In chapter eight, they're puffed up because they think they can go sit at, at the worship of false idols and it's no problem. This isn't gonna bother me. I'm not hurt by this, right? And that was a reflection of their arrogance. They had this exalted view of themselves and, and it, was, it, was, uh, it was putting themselves and the church at danger. But it, it isn't just, right, that it was about themselves. Look at the language in verse six. It was against the other, because this shows that the arrogance is not just comparative, if I'd put it that way, right? Comparative is I'm better than so-and-so, but it was also competitive. Not just that I'm better than, but because I'm better than, we don't need to listen to this guy or we don't need to follow this guy. We should not be going that direction, right? That's so, so what Paul has used as I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, actually what he's starting to make the application to, it wasn't just I'm of Apollos, it's I'm against Paul. Right, And the reason I shift it that way is because of the verse we read in verse 18. There are some who have become arrogant against Paul. Right, That's the puffed up. So they their inflated view of themselves isn't just that they think they're better than Paul, but they think it gives them warrant to reject Paul's ministry, to, to go a different way than what Paul had taught them and had revealed uh, through his apostolic ministry to them. And so he's, he's, uh, he's going to be zealous about trying to pop that inflated balloon, right? You're, you're puffed up and he's gonna pull out the pin because this is a serious problem for them. And that's what he starts to do in verse seven. Here comes the real problem with this situation, all right? And he asks three questions. He goes, what, who, why? For who regards you as superior? Who, what, what do you have that you did not receive? And then if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not? The, I think what he's really doing is drawing out two, if I could put it this way, two things for our consideration. The first is this, is that pride makes us think that we are exceptional, right? That Look at that first line there. For who regards you as superior? That is, you're better than others, right? And there, there is debate about whether or not this is a positive statement, which would be something like, so, so if you have some superiority, for instance, if you've excelled in gifts or you've excelled in knowledge, where did that come from, right? So you shouldn't be proud about it. I, I tend to see it in the negative light in that, why are you making this judgment on yourself as superior? Right? Why do you regard yourself this? And it's interesting, the word regard here is the same word that was used in the first part of the chapter of examine. Right? Let him regard us in this way, the one who examines me, or if I'm examined by any human court, it's, it's a form of the word uh, in the New Testament that has to do with judgment or discernment. So why have you come to this judgment about yourself that you're superior? Right? They, and, and, and that's clearly what's going on, that they think they're somehow exceptional in their gifts and abilities, in the, in the, um, the demonstration of God's power and spirit there. I mean, that's the part we have to, we have to constantly keep in, in our mind that, that this is not, this is not a church full of unbelievers. Right? The, the problem there is the, the grace of God has been bestowed there. And instead of it, instead of it causing them to be humbled, they've become proud of it. 
thinking themselves better than others because of the manifestation of God's work among them. They're enriched, chapter one says, in every gift and all knowledge. So they're ready to think, look at us. Aren't we special? Aren't we superior to other people? And, and, and that's the problem. They've turned toward that and have adopted a kind of pride that takes anything that distinguishes us from someone else and makes it a place of our boasting. Right? And, and it's not to deny that, that some, I mean, people are different. Churches are different. Servants are different. Right? Paul doesn't say, no, Apollos and Paul are exactly the same. He says, no, they, they are, they're doing what God gave them to do, which was different things to do. Paul was a planter, Apollos was a waterer. You don't solve the pride problem by making everything the same, right? Which is what our culture is tending to do, is actually somehow if we can create this false concept of an egalitarian that recognizes no difference from anybody, that's not the pattern in Scripture. The pattern in Scripture is to say, so, so why is there a difference? Is it rooted in the person or is it actually rooted in God? Is diversity in the church the, the product of humans or is it the product of God's diverse grace? Is, is that some places enjoy a, uh, what I would say a more manifest display of, of blessing? Is that to be attributed to them? Or is it to be attributed to God's purposes? And, and we have, I mean, I don't have time to unpack this whole thing, but I just want to say it, right? Is we've got to fight the kind of mechanistic approach that our culture adopts, right? If you do, if, if you do A, B will happen. And we think it's just an operation of mechanics. And therefore, whoever did A, was smarter than the people who didn't do A, so they should get applauded and, and held up, right? But the fact is, the scriptures are clear, you can do A and you might get B or C or D, right? Jonah did A and Nineveh repented. Isaiah did A and they had ears to hear but didn't hear and eyes to see and didn't see. In our day, we'd go, hey, let's schedule Jonah for our next conference because that guy gets results, right? That's, that's the way we tend to operate. And, and the fact is that in God's plan, he was going to overcome the frailty of Jonah to accomplish his purposes with regard to Nineveh. And he was going to, he was going to judge Israel because of their recalcitrance, and Isaiah was going to be the, un, I mean, from a human standpoint, the unfortunate instrument of that. Because the reality of it is, none of us would want to spend all of our life trying to do something for the Lord and at the beginning be told, this isn't going to amount to much. Here's what I'm telling you you know, who will go for me? Here am I, Lord, send me. Great. Here's where I'm sending you. They're not going to listen. They're not going to respond. You'll spend your entire ministry preaching to people who won't listen. But do it for me. And I'm going to give you some things to write that 2,700 years from now, people will still be reading and rejoicing in the Messiah. And it'd be like, oh, that's great be like, I sure would like something now though, right? The fact is that, that we have a tendency to think like that. So, so if, if B happens, we think it's an endorsement of A. Was the revival at, at Nineveh an endorsement of Jonah? Not at all. Was the lack of revival in Israel some kind of slam against Isaiah? Not at all. 
right? And and so here's here's a part of what Paul's saying is that that you're you're having a tendency to say what God did makes me superior, right? So that obviously means that you don't understand grace because God graciously worked in Nineveh by using an unfit vessel, (laughs) right? God didn't need to do, have to do what he did for Nineveh. And he certainly didn't have to use Jonah. It was even kindness by God to use Jonah in that circumstance, right? Because he could have left him in the belly of that fish. He could have not prepared a fish for him, right? The reality of it is it's about God. It's not about the instrument. But we tend to glory in the instrument rather than the one who uses the instrument. And Paul, Paul's very clear to, to put the sort of the ax to the root of that tree and not, not let differences among God's servants or differences among congregations, right? So if Corinth was richer than the Philippians, that didn't mean they were better than the Philippians, right? If, if, God chose to do some, some what appears to be a, a greater work in some place that doesn't make that, the people in that place better than the other place. Right? Cause it's not measured like that. It's not, it's not looked at like that. So we need to recognize is that we can't go the way of our culture, which is sort of a phony kind of equality. Uh, that tries to to you know to smash out any differences, but is to recognize that that whatever differences there are, and whatever glorying there might be, it's not in the instruments. It's actually in the one who uses them, right? And that's what he comes very clear to in the second part of the verse. The the what question, what do you have that you did not receive? What's, what's the answer to that? Nothing, right? Everything you have has come to you from God and pride reveals that we don't understand grace and that we are ungrateful, right? Grace is we've received it. We, we were given it to us as a gift and then Instead of giving thanks for that gift, the the why question, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did had not received it? Why, Why are you making some claim of glory or boasting about what something clearly came from God? It's not, it didn't come from you. Right? It was, it was a gift to you. So the boasting shouldn't be in the recipient of the gift. It actually should be in the giver. It should be that you're looking to the giver with an expression of gratitude in that regard. And since everything we have fits this category, right? He's very expansive here. What do you have that you did not receive? Right? And, and again, here's what I would say is that, that our culture would tend to go, um, you know, eliminate the what you've received. But Paul doesn't do that. The word doesn't do that. Do you, do you have talent? You could say yes. Well, where did it come from? You or God? Right? You don't have to deny that you have ability in order to be humble. What you have to do is recognize this is a gift from God. It's God who should get the credit for it. Have you been entrusted with certain possessions and riches? It's, it's humble isn't going, well, I, I really don't have anything when you're, you know, you've got tons, right? Humble isn't lying about it. Humble is saying, this has come from God. God gets the credit for it, right? God, God has done this. Do you attain to some position in life? Do you have some, some authority? Do you have some opportunity? It's not to deny it or act like that's not the case. Humble isn't going, well, you know, it's nothing. When everybody on the planet knows it actually is something. Humility is saying, the Lord puts up one and takes down another. 
Promotion doesn't come from the east or west, but from the Lord. A man can receive nothing except to be given to him from above is what John the Baptist said. Because you know what John, John was standing there and he had all the crowds coming to him and all of a sudden they're starting to run off to Jesus and his, John's disciples are a little ticked. They're jealous for him. Lord, everyone's, everyone's going to Jesus. And you know, John's answer, we, know, we usually know the second one. He must increase, I must decrease. We missed the one before that where he says, a man can receive nothing except to be given him from above. You know what he's saying? Is if they're all going to him, that's because that's God doing that. Am I gonna complain about what God's doing? Right, everyone came to me because that's what God was doing. They're all leaving to go to Jesus because that's what God's doing. What I had, I received from God. What he's getting, he's receiving from God. So there's not an issue of of personal uh, value attached to it because you weren't better because you received it and you're not better if God chooses to take it away. Because there's the problem is if we think, boy, I've got, I've got talent or I've got ability or I've got, I've got authority or I've got influence, all the things that our world craves for. And we say, we've got that. And we think God must have given this to me because I'm special. There was something about me that God saw and he gave this to me. Right, all of a sudden we've shifted our focus away from the grace of God in his gifts to our worthiness of them. And that's the seed of pride, right? It's, it's just the way it works. I mean, the uh, Lord gave uh, Pastor Jacob an oppor- and I an opportunity to drive up into the UP to do a pastor's conference. Um, and I loved, I, it was, it was, it was a, a great opportunity because partly I've got, I've got sort of deep roots there is up, you know, when you, you know, like Michigan, we always do this, right? And if you actually, if you actually do this, then if you go to the upper peninsulas like that, right? We were way up here. That's called the Keweenaw Peninsula. That's where my mom was born. And we used to go up there into, into the way North country. So it was really encouraging to see healthy churches up there and pastors serving Christ. And I said to my wife, when we got back, I said, you know, the, the host pastor, probably almost nobody's going to ever know who he is, except for people up in that area. I mean, he's not going to get invited to go speak at conferences. He's not going to get, you know, whatever. He's certainly not going to be like the some kind of reverent tones people will say about Dr. So-and-so or whatever. But you know who knows him? And you know who gave him that opportunity there? And you know who's using him? And you know when it's all said and done, what's going to matter? It's, it's what God does. Right? It's, it's the work of God. Just recognizing that what's put in our hand to do is put there by the grace of God, not our merit. And therefore, whatever we have to do it, whether if I use language from the gospels, whether we have one talent or three talents or five talents, that's, that's, that's God's decision, right? So use what we have for his glory and his work. And, and let him get the credit and you make sure you give him the credit for it because it's about him and his work. Why would we boast as if we have not received it? So we give God the credit he deserves for all of these things. And, and we need to see what Paul would say. It's not just that we give God the credit for it, but we also rejoice in his gifts to other people. Right, Because the arrogance they had was for one against another. And sometimes, if you go all the way back to chapter 3, he talked about strife and jealousy. Sometimes the ugly monster of our pride shows itself in us being jealous of what other people have received to do from God. 
or what other people are receiving because of what's accomplished. We think, we think, well, why are they getting praised? Don't you see what I did? Hey, I did the same thing. In fact, I did it better. Why are they getting the praise for it? Right? That's, that's, that's an ugly form of pride that shows itself in jealousy and envy over praise given to other people. And that's what Paul's against. Their arrogance is going really against Paul. Why is Paul receiving all of this credit? Right? And, and, and it turns sour because they're not happy about it. And it starts to show itself in actions toward Paul, which he'll mention in a moment. Look not verses eight through 13, because he, it's almost as if he goes on sort of a, a riff here with, with all kinds of statements that are intended to, to help, I think, anchor what he's just said. And here's the way that I'm going to summarize them. In verses eight and nine, he says, we are not yet what we will be, right? Because he says to them, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have all, you have become kings without us. And, and here's, and I'm going to come back to the second. This is Paul clearly using our irony or even sarcasm because he doesn't actually mean that's the case. Cause look at the second part of the verse. He says, and indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. So clearly when he says you have become kings without us, and then he says, I wish you had become kings, must mean he doesn't think they are. You get that? You've become kings. Well, I actually wish you had become kings. So he must be meaning you think you're filled. You think you're rich. You think you're kings. Right, So he's actually contrasting the way they think about themselves with, in fact, how life is. And, and the problem seems to be that the Corinthians had, um, I mean, there's technical ways in which people describe it, but the, the simplest way is to think that they, they've somehow come to the conclusion that the blessings, the whole blessings offered to them in Christ, which included reigning with Christ, having all that they need, being full of all the blessings he's promised to them, that instead of that being uh, some now, but not actually really fully delivered, that they've already got it all. And that's why it keeps cropping up in their ethically bad decisions, right? I mean, because it's, it's, it's sort of, I mean, it's sort of mind-blowing to think in chapter 5, that a man is involved in an immoral relationship with his father's wife, so probably his stepmother. And Paul says, you've become arrogant about it. Which means that they must be going like, look at us. How enlightened we are. How above the cares of this world we are that we can do this. And then you go, wow, that's pretty odd. Well, you get into chapter six and you've actually got people going to the temple prostitutes and thinking they're okay with that. And, and in fact, they're in chapter eight, they're going right into the pagan temple and sitting down to dinner while the idols are being worshiped around them. And I'm okay because I'm in Christ, I'm rich. I'm filled, I'm reigning, I'm above all of this, right? Get the idea in that become kings is sort of maybe think I'm above the law. I can do whatever I want because of my relationship to Christ. The things that mere mortals in this world have to be concerned about, we are superior to all of that, right? They, they had such an inflated view of themselves now thinking, it seems like, that they had actually arrived at a kind of glorification, spiritual uh, level that they didn't have to be controlled by the commands of scripture, the obligations of the gospel. And again, we can look back at that, but I mean, how, you know, it doesn't take long 
watching the headlines of religious scandal in our day to find people who who use that kind of language to be the cloak for horrible sin, right? Or, I mean, uh, uh, you know, clearly the qualifications of Scripture say the husband of one wife and 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 church is so full of some kind of misguided spirituality that the the pastor can be unfaithful to his wife, divorce her, and marry the organist, and everyone's like, oh, look at what God did. And it's like, God did? Right? Because they get wrapped in that pseudo kind of spirituality. And that's that's the problem is here. They think. In those cases, the ones I just, it's that, oh, the pastor's so far ahead of everybody. It must be okay. I mean, he's such a spiritual person. It must be okay. It's like, no. And that's what Paul's saying is it's, it's, you, you, you think, you think you are someplace where you are not. That's your pride. Right? You're, you need to realize we are not yet what we will be. There will come a day when you can't sin. It won't be in this life. There will come a day when you know as you are known, but it's not in this life. There will come a day when you will reign with Christ over the creation, but it's not today. Right? And that's what Paul's driving home because look at the end of verse nine. He says, we, I'm sorry, end of verse eight. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you because Paul knows that he's not reigning because look at the description in verse nine. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. That language there is is either reflective of uh, the games, like the gladiator, gladiators, and the last ones out were the ones that basically were going to be either offered up to the lions or to the gladiators to be killed, or it's a reference to a triumphal procession where Caesar or whoever was the conquering hero was marching back with their soldiers and all those that were being honored for the victory and at the tail of the line, last of all, were those who had been conquered and were being brought back to put to death. Either way, it's not a really positive image that Paul has for for where we are right now. That, That the apostles actually are at the back of the line in terms of human esteem and are sentenced to death and condemnation for their service to Christ. So what he does here is ironically sort of challenge them and and confront them on it. And I say, and again, this would probably be worth a whole whole unpacking of it, but I just think it's needed to be said because it always seems to happen, right? So, So one of two things goes wrong on this issue of sarcasm or irony. I remember as a young man, a guy teaching, uh, teaching in a leadership kind of context who basically said, sarcasm is always wrong. Sarks is the word for flesh. Sarcasm is cutting the flesh. You're always cutting into people when you do sarcasm. Christians should never do sarcasm. And I remember thinking then and many times since then, so was Paul sinning here? Were the prophets sinning? When, when they spoke like they did? I mean, when, when Elijah's on Mount Carmel and he's basically going, hey, where's your God? Is he on vacation or taking a bathroom break? I mean, he's, he's being very sarcastic, right? So he, he wasn't sinning, okay? Now, the other side of it is, so people go like, hey, oh, you see what they do? And then they're just jerks. Right? They're tearing people to shreds because I'm just being like Jesus, you know, when he says whited sepulchers full of dead men bones. So, you know, they think they can just rip people to shreds because they've got the authorization of the scripture, right? And, and like most things, it's, it's when you don't do, uh, make an effort to balance it biblically. I think a good parallel would be, 
righteous anger. Right? Anger is not always sinful. And you have to believe that because in the Gospels, it says Jesus looked at them with anger. And Jesus wasn't sinning. And the Psalms say God is angry with the wicked every day. And God is not sinning. There is a kind of anger that is righteous. That is, it's provoked by the right things. It is demonstrated in the right way. But most of us need to recognize that's probably not our first response. Our first response can tend to be the wrath of man, which doesn't work the righteousness of God. So so we've got to be careful. And I'd say the same thing about this use of irony or sarcasm. It is legitimate if it's exercised legitimately. Right? What, what is the object of it? Is it something that's wicked and evil? To make fun of false gods is not a problem because they're wicked and evil and worthy of mockery. They're like a scarecrow in the cucumber field. Right? They're worth mocking because they are worthless. Right? People made an image of God. You better be a lot more careful about. Right. So, so what provokes it and how is it done? What kind of care is exercised in doing it? What Paul's saying is you have a inflated view of what you are now in that you're thinking you're already, you're already glorified. You're already filled. You're already rich. You're already ruining. And, and that's not the case at all. Right? There's the first pin into the balloon of their puffed up nature. Look at verse 10. Sometimes we're puffed up because we, we are sometimes not actually even what we think we are now. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. In this case, Paul is, I think, contrasting this on the basis of what he said earlier. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 27 for a moment. Look at 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. There's foolish versus wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. There's the weak, strong comparison. And then 28, the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so they may nullify the things that are. And I think that's uh, roughly parallel to the distinguished and without honor. All right, so he's saying, you, you've come to the conclusion about yourself that you're wise or prudent, you're strong, you're distinguished, and that we are, in fact, fools and weak and without honor. And he's trying to get them to see you're not actually what you think you are. Because if your, if your wisdom is the wisdom of the world, God considers it to be foolishness. And if we're fools for Christ, actually God considers that to be wisdom. And if we're weak means we actually just stand on the cross and the power of the gospel then actually it's the power of God to salvation. And you're wanting something that you think is stronger than the cross and you've actually chosen something weak. You've wanted to gain the approval and appreciation of the culture around you so that you, you, can, you can appear to be something. And in doing that, you've lost what really matters. We're actually without honor, but we actually are going to be exalted by God, right? So sometimes sometimes our arrogance can cause us to be confused about what we really are. And then look at 11 to 13. He actually would say that we are definitely not now what the world wants us to be. 
He makes two temporal statements, beginning in verse 11 to this present hour, and then look at the end of verse 13, even until now. So he's saying, like, this is the way it is in this world until Christ returns. The present time is one of struggle and suffering. Then he lists six trials, or we could say deprivations, that come along with following Christ faithfully. We're hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, are homeless, and we toil. We have to work with our own hands. So, and I think what he's doing here is not saying that this is, he's really doing this as the foil to we're filled, we're rich, we're reigning. And Paul goes, no, here's what it is. We're hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and homeless and and we have to work to provide for ourselves versus kings who have other people work for them, right? That, that the fact is the things that the world would hold up as the good life, following Christ actually puts all of that at risk potentially, right? And it is potentially because we, we, uh, we have had the blessing of living for a long time in a culture that has been shaped by Christian values. But we've moved, if I use language that's sometimes used in our day, we moved from that positive world into a neutral world where Christianity was tolerated. And we're now on the edge of a negative world where the things that we hold dear are actually looked at as, as bad. And it's going to cost more and more to follow Christ, right? It's, it's going to be like this potentially. Like Hebrews says, accept the seizure of your property or, or be willing to endure contradiction of sinners or be imprisoned for Christ. Paul says that's the pathway in the present world that rejects Christ. And look what happens to him because of that. At the end of verse Second part of verse 12, we are reviled, we are persecuted, we are slandered. And instead of, instead of returning that in kind, he says, we bless when reviled, which is rooted in the teachings of Jesus in Luke 6. When persecuted, we endure. We don't run from it. We endure it. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. I think a good way to to, to think about that would be we answer kindly, right? We don't, when slandered, we don't strike back. We try to give a good, kind answer to it. And that's what Paul's been doing because he's been reviled and he's been slandered and he's been willing to say the hard right thing. Arrogance causes us to think we deserve better than verses 11 and 12a and that we have a right to fight back like 12B, right? You can't do this to me. I don't deserve this. Don't treat me like this, right? And that's what was happening in the church there. So here's the reality of it. Boasting, boasting in humans creates hubris and leads to conflict. That's the way it works. But grace, because grace has supplied all that we have, it should generate gratitude, not boasting and competition. We should be thankful for what we have and rejoice in what other people have because it all comes from God. And I would argue that worldliness is a lot more subtle than we sometimes recognize it. It can shape the way we view life, ministry, the church without even recognizing it. And I think one way to spot it is whether we're comfortable being out of step with the world. Are we comfortable being out of step with the culture around us? If we always have to try and catch up to it, to keep in line with it, to have its favor, then the focus of our lives has become about us rather than about the cross and about Christ and the glory of God. Let's pray, please. Lord, please help us to recognize the danger of pride. Uh, the very nature of it is what makes it so dangerous. It can almost go 
under the radar until it seeped into us personally, congregationally. Help us to be attentive to our own hearts on this issue and, and to test our hearts by our reactions. If we, if we are easily offended, if we are jealous, if we're prone to fight, then, then those are signs that, that there is some kind of arrogance there. And may you help us to see that that's not the way of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you might help us never to think we know better than you when it comes to the way of salvation, both for ourselves, but also in the message we communicate to others. Help us never to be ashamed of the admission that we have nothing to offer for our salvation. All we have is Christ, and, and we have all we need. And we have nothing to offer to this world more than Christ. But oh, what a gift we can offer in Christ. So help us to be bold in him, humble about ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.